0: And thanks for listening.
2: Any self-respecting environmentalist reeling off solutions to the climate crisis would include driving cleaner cars, planting more trees, eating less meat. But how do our housing choices factor into this? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One conversations are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Claire Schoen. If we can walk to the subway, we can drive our cars less. So where we build housing and how close it is to mass transit has a big impact on our carbon footprint.
3: People are living in places where they have to drive everywhere where they have to drive to work, they have to drive to the store, where there's no other options for anyone, whether you're poor, whether you're middle class, there, there's no option to get around other than driving. Uh, and what we've done is we have just spiked carbon emissions as a result of our land use patterns.
2: That's Scott Wiener, California state senator representing San Francisco, Daly City and Colma. Before going to Sacramento, he served on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and several regional transportation agencies. Scott Wiener talked to our host, Greg Dalton, at a recent Climate One event. According to Wiener, plans to green our cities should include new urban housing that's convenient to transportation. But this runs the risk of boosting the real estate market and gentrifying the neighborhood out of the reach of all but the wealthy.
4: When we got the light rail, there was a lot of concerns around the speculation that was happening with, uh, with land and what that would mean for a predominantly tenant community of immigrants, low income, that didn't have high land ownership. That's Issa Gracian. She's president of the East LA Community Corporation, a nonprofit
2: that's built hundreds of affordable housing units in a working class neighborhood near downtown Los Angeles. Grassian joined Greg's conversation, along with Rachel Swan, a City Hall reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Swan's also reported for the SF Weekly and the East Bay Express. And she's looked into ways to preserve affordable housing in green urban planning.
5: A lot of cities in the Bay Area um, are doing things like impact fees, you know, putting a fee on developers to create more funding for affordable housing. Greg's fourth guest on this panel is Ann Chang, a
2: transportation expert at TRANSFORM, a transit planning agency and advocacy group. She previously served as a city council member and mayor of El Cerrito. Greg started out this conversation with Ann Chang and a question about the Brady
1: Bunch. And Chang, we both watched the Brady Bunch growing up. What does the Brady Bunch and other you know, TV shows tell us about where we are in, in housing and, and urbanization?
0: You know, it's interesting to see the context actually match my life. Um, I grew up in the suburbs and two-car garage. And, and over the years, I've learned that marketers of TV Programs actually have some of the largest marketing budgets to do research about consumer preferences and very much matches consumer preferences from boomers.
1: Senator Wiener, how do you think about the two pressing issues for California? Housing, which is very tangible and immediate, and climate, which seems to be abstract and far away.
3: They're absolutely linked. And we've gone through a long period of time, speaking of the Brady Bunch, where uh, this country encouraged, actively encouraged people to leave cities, uh, to spread out, to live in the suburbs, to drive everywhere. Uh, Suburb where I grew up, there were no sidewalks. There was uh, almost no bus service. People are living in places where they have to drive everywhere, where they have to drive to work, they have to drive to the store, where there's no other options. For anyone, whether you're poor whether you're middle class, there's no option to get around other than driving. Uh, And what, what we've done is we have just spiked carbon emissions as a result of our land use patterns. That's a problem. And we need to get back to the way we did it for a long time, which was to have people living near each other, having people live near where they work, being able to walk, get around in ways where they're not, burning fossil fuels. And the only way you can do that is to have denser housing, have multi-unit housing, near public transportation, closer to where people work. Otherwise, we'll just keep spreading out and we're going to make our climate situation even worse.
1: A lot of people nod, say, yes, walkable, good, density, good, until it comes to a particular neighborhood. So Isla Gracian, why don't you tell us the story of uh, of Boyle Heights, east of downtown Los Angeles. The metro rail came there, and then what followed?
4: Yeah, so Bo Heights literally is just across the bridge from downtown Los Angeles, and historically it's been home to immigrant communities, being one of the few neighborhoods where people of color could live during redlining um, in the city of L.A.,
1: There was actually racial exclusion in covenants. People of certain races couldn't buy property in certain parts of Los Angeles.
4: Right. Races and religion, you know, Bull Heights had a strong Jewish community. There was African-American, Russian, Japanese-American, then waves from Latin America, predominantly Mexico. So because of that, there was lack of investment, including transportation and the lack of having the light light rail going through, and when we got the light rail, there was a lot of concerns around the speculation that was happening with, uh, with land, and what that would mean for a predominantly tenant community of immigrants, low income, that didn't have high land ownership. We want investment, we want development, but we wanna benefit the people that invested their lives when nobody else would invest their money in this neighborhood.
1: And the arts community has been central to what's been happening in in Boyle Heights. In this case, art galleries became a real flashpoint.
4: Yeah, I think that art and the cultural richness in Boyle Heights has been there for a really long time. Right. Um, It's also been home to the mural movement within Chicano community. Um, So you walk around the neighborhood and you see walls full of art that reflect the history and the community. You'll hear musicians. So the flashpoint that's happened in most recent times around the investment from downtown into the neighborhood of Bull Heights. So it's a big tension around like having high-end art um, in a neighborhood where there's still so many other needs to be met, including you know housing and transportation and other amenities. And what we've been seeing in Bull Heights, because we also have a long history of activism around community organizing and engaging residents. So in Bull Heights, we're at this moment where we could potentially be the model of a neighborhood that doesn't completely flip with gentrification because of the decades of work of community residents to really drive the investment. So the art galleries are a symptom, not necessarily the cause, but this has created an opportunity to continue to raise the issue and keep it alive in the neighborhood.
1: Rachel Swan, let's get you in here on your reporting covering housing around transit that doesn't push up prices and push people out.
5: A lot of cities in the Bay Area um, are doing things like impact fees, you know, putting a a fee on developers to create more funding for affordable housing. I mean, so there's definitely responsible ways to build dense around transit. Take, for example, BART stations. I mean, we have a lot of places where there just could be infill. It's just asphalt.
1: Gil Friend is a Chief Sustainability Officer of Palo Alto. We asked him what Palo Alto is doing in the heart of Silicon Valley to add more housing in that job-rich area. Let's listen to Gil Friend.
6: We need more housing. We need more affordable housing. We need more housing near transit. Uh, We need more housing that is designed to not be dependent on the automobile. Palo Alto has now uh, raised its annual targets uh, for housing uh, improvement more than triple what they were a few years ago. You find that in a lot of local jurisdictions around California, there's a segment of the community that says, can't you just leave me with the community that I moved to five or 10 or 20 years ago? You know, it's a delicate balance between the climate urgency and the political reality of the moment as people start to feel the pain as they see viable solutions coming into place elsewhere and as the political organizing for these kinds of solutions strengthens we're going to see a shift in practice the specifics vary as you might imagine in different communities because the you know the climate regimes are different the needs are different the land use patterns are different but we're seeing increasingly cities are stepping up
1: Gil Friend, Chief Sustainability Officer in Palo Alto, home to Stanford University in the heart of Silicon Valley. We're talking about climate change and affordable housing in California and around the country with Ann Chang, transportation expert with Transform, an advocacy group. Isla Gracian, President of the East LA Community Corporation. Rachel Swan from the San Francisco Chronicle. And Scott Wiener, California State Senator. I'm Greg Dalton. Senator Wiener, Palo Alto tripled their housing supply, new housing units. That's still only 300 units in a city of 65,000. <laughs> Give us a scope of the issue. How many, how many jobs are being created? How much housing does, does the barrier Area
3: need? Credit where credit is due. I mean, we're seeing some cities like Palo Alto, like Mountain View, wealthier cities that have historically been intensely anti housing, welcome jobs, but no housing, and kids can't afford to move back home. Uh, and you're starting to see a shift. But, you know, tripling a tiny number. In terms of the scale of what we're facing, just to put it in perspective, uh, our housing deficit in California right now is 3.5 million homes. We are 3.5 million homes short of where we need to be, and that number keeps growing, and we need it at all income levels. In context, when you look at the other 49 states combined, guess what their housing deficit is? approximately three and a half million homes. We're equal to the other 49 states. It shows how intense it is here. And I've lived in the Castro for 21 years. I have seen the waves of gentrification in my community and the people who are being forced out, LGBT people being forced out, seniors being forced out. And there are times when we say, okay, let's, do, let's address housing. Great, let's put 20 units here. Let's and pat ourselves on the back. That's great, it's 20 more units than we had. We need to have it at a significant scale. And that means making sure that we are zoning properly so you're not zoned around a BART station for single-family homes, which means you're pushing people away from transit. It means that we are massively investing in housing for low-income and very low-income people so that we can make sure that everyone can remain and we're not kicking people out. We need to make sure that we are doing this at a scale that we need while protecting renters so people aren't getting evicted.
1: Rachel Swan, there's NIMBY, not in my backyard. has been a political phenomenon around the country for a long time. Now there's YIMBY, yes, in my backyard. They're trying to move from kind of an online thing to actually a political force, backed by some powerful tech people such as Jeremy Stoppelman, CEO of, uh, of Yelp. Tell us about YIMBY.
5: YIMBY is a term that... I feel like gained currency in the last couple of years or so it started, you know, around this idea of urban design that became popular on social media. Cause I mean, you look at like, you know, people of kind of my generation ish and younger, I guess I'd, count as an old millennial but most of us are renters and you know people who maybe can't afford or are struggling to live in the core of the city so this group that sort of is loosely coalesced online is starting to become more of a political movement there's actually like yimby chapters in the south bay and all along the region and um, in san francisco there's yimby political candidates and they've kind of forced this conversation in um, electoral politics
1: And Cheng, you have served in electoral politics. Environmentalists are often criticized for being against just about everything. This is a group that's saying, yes, let's build. We need more housing. How do you see that dynamic?
0: I think it's it's a super welcome voice that has not existed. And what's super exciting is to see young people coming into these really boring meetings that most people never even know about and know where to go and show up. And When you do come, you know, everyone takes notice from the city manager to the police chief and is refreshed that the the torch has been passed to the next generation. And being a Gen Xer myself, I have gotten to see the benefit of participating early and young. And when you see your voice impact future plans of a whole city and actually seeing that development start to take shape and knowing that you helped make it happen that it takes you into every branch of life that you you pursue. And I just want more and more young people to, to keep on that track. You're listening to a Climate One conversation
2: about planning housing in the era of climate change. Greg Dalton is talking about smart growth for our cities with Ann Chang, a transportation expert at Transform, Isla Gracian, president of the East L.A. Community Corporation, Rachel Swan, a City Hall reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and Scott Wiener, state senator representing San Francisco, Daly City, and Colma. Here's your host, Greg Dalton.
1: Isla Gracian, there's an element to Yimbyism, which is tech wealth that there's a lot of techies, they're often resisted in some areas. And what's your take on this?
4: With YIMBY, I honestly, like, I cringe because it's created a dichotomy, whether you're a NIMBY or a YIMBY, of either you're against development or for any kind of development. And there's so much in between, Um, um, especially in neighborhoods like Bull Heights. And you can see this across the state where communities have been so active for decades in having transformation come to their their neighborhood and having that that investment take place and it's almost like in some instances the YIMBY voice has wiped out that resident-led people of color low-income communities like their voice in this conversation and for me I think that's very unfortunate and and we definitely have seen it in in conversations where by YIMBYs we were called an anti-housing organization when we build affordable housing we engage people in housing and it was just a Kind of hard to wrap my head around having somebody um, say that our organization was anti housing when we've been doing that for over 20 years. Actually, building and and working with the nuances of of all that it takes to build the political will, the financing, and the, the community power to actually get a building built
1: you want your community to change but in certain ways right with with certain people moving from renters to owners and people having more choice and economic power you're for change but a certain kind of change is that
4: fair definitely very fair community driven change that centers the most vulnerable populations, right? You know, if we're thinking about shaping our environment for the people that have the greatest opportunities and the most able, then we're not going to lift all boats. We're not going to be building across.
1: Senator Weiner, you had a bill to fast-track development around transit and around California. Some environmentalists came out against that. What does it mean to be an environmentalist these days to you?
3: Yeah. What the bill said was that you have to allow more housing near public transportation, that you can't have hyper low density zoning where you say, I know we have a major subway stop here, but we're only going to allow single family homes on a quarter acre of land around the station. Because when you have that hyper low density zoning around public transportation, what you're basically doing is you're banning apartment buildings when you ban apartment buildings, not only does that reduce the number of people who can live near transit, it means you can't build affordable housing either, because people don't build affordable housing single-family homes. You build multi-unit. And in terms of the environmental community, uh, on the bill I authored, Senate Bill 827, it was actually split. We had a number of significant environmental groups that were supporting the bill and helping to move it forward. There were a few uh, environmental groups, and then there were also uh, environmental justice groups that were opposed to the bill. Partly, um, I think the environmental justice groups, it was around gentrification concerns, and we tried to work to put in more tenant protections and affordability requirements. And, you know, I think the environmental movement, in my view, is, is shifting. For many, many years, you know, it was about clean air and clean water and open space and forests and all of these critically important issues. And environmental movement is that heroic work, trying to get rid of the coal industry. But environmentalism, in my view, is incomplete without a housing aspect to it in terms of where people are living and therefore how people are able to get around. And so I think to have a complete environmental agenda... Housing and housing density has to be a part of that. And I think we are seeing a change and a shift in the environmental movement towards that.
1: And Chang, you say that housing has kind of shuffled the traditional left and right in, in American politics. How so?
0: Well, it's, yeah, it shuffled, I, I guess. Or
1: it doesn't, doesn't the, the typical divisions don't, don't align because there are some, you have progressives who are, Sanders supporters who are pro-development, pro-housing, mm-hmm. which you expect the left to be kind of against a lot of, you know, against big money.
0: Yeah, I think it's creating space for the mimbies, the maybe in my backyard, and let's talk about it, <laughs> and let's respect each other's needs and actually listen to each other's needs and get to know each other and know the history of our involvement in our communities. You know, I think our traditional zoning techniques have been so one-size-fits-all that um, it's no longer relevant anymore. You know, it used to be maybe two or three types of housing, and now we really want to open up and, and give people many transportation choices and many housing choices. And when you think of natural systems, resilience comes from diversity and choice and being able to experiment and iterate and adjust.
1: Isla Gracian, we know from polling that Latinos and African Americans around the country are concerned about climate because they're often closest to the sources of pollution. They understand it, but there's a language gap. Tell us about the language gap for, for people in terms of how they talk about or think about it.
4: Yeah, I mean, definitely in Latino families and black families and really like poor families, right? the um, climate and energy conservation has been part of our lives because of uh, economic situations, right? Um, You know, I grew up in a household where my mom was like, every time you leave a room, make sure you turn off the light and, you know, watch how you're using water. And so the issues of climate are very much alive in in our communities in the day-to-day, right? And I also think about, like, in the Central Valley where there was so many homes without water because of the drought. And so many Latino families is that, you know, there's this picture that stays in my head with uh, a woman at the sink with the dishes piling up because there wasn't water to wash the dishes, right? And then we have, for example, in Bowl Heights with the freeways intersecting the neighborhood, the 5, the, the 101, the 60, there is virtually no place in the neighborhood of Bull Heights where you could go without either going under or next to a freeway. And the issues of pollution and asthma and heart disease and what that contributes to young children and adults. So it's an important issue because of the impact on money and on health and overall wellness for for Latino communities.
1: So it's a local issue in a health frame versus something ecosystems or, or, or something else. Senator Reid, let's get your, your take on that and how you see climate as, as a public health issue. What resonates most directly with people? Because it's it's perceived to be yeah. far away in time well, and
7: space.
3: You know many low income communities have been dealing with these challenges for many, many years. I was down in Boyle Heights and, and one of the uh, community leaders I met with actually made a comment that low-income communities, communities of color, have been dealing with housing insecurity, not being able to afford housing, getting evicted, getting displaced, wondering if you're ever going to be able to afford a home, forever. And now white middle class people are all of a sudden, wow, I can't afford housing. And, and am I going to get evicted? And I'm going to get displaced. So the problem then broadens out And it is tremendously unfair that sometimes the political will to make change doesn't happen until that broadening occurs, but, you know, at least you then start maybe having momentum to make some change. Uh, We need to make sure, though, that as we're making that change, we're not leaving people behind because that's the risk that we have around housing uh, and around some of our approaches to climate change.
1: Rachel Swan, employers are a key driver behind getting housing because they don't want to have to pay their workers so much. They want to get prices down so they can keep down that wage inflation. Uh, but tell us about the role that Silicon Valley and other companies are playing in trying to get more housing near transit so their people can get to work. Not everyone can go to work in a Google bus.
5: There, there seems to be this stereotype of all techies are wealthy gentrifiers, but You know, actually a lot of them can't, once they start having families, they find they can't afford to live near the Twitter building in downtown San Francisco or they're confined to like a one bedroom apartment. So um, there's a lot of support in um, the tech community for this idea of a different form of urban design sensible housing design I mean Google is is opening a new headquarters by what's supposed to be the downtown BART extension in San Jose and I think with Jeremy Stoppelman I've CEO of Yelp I'm sorry CEO of Yelp he funded a GIMBY lawsuit against the the suburb of Lafayette wanting to build dense housing near a BART station or wanting to force a suburb to build dense housing near a BART station, and I mean, he seems to be very deep into this credo of like, I want dense housing near transit. So um,
0: there is a big push to to change urban design. And it's great that they're starting to see that um, you know, providing buses is not the only solution. That maybe looking at converting the oceans of parking around the Google campuses into housing is important as well as making those complete communities and not just dorms um, as well as inviting the community to shape and, and you know, request their needs get met as well in the part of the package.
1: And Cheng, there was a report that came out recently about Uber and Lyft. It was in the Washington Post and how they are actually increasing overall car traffic. They could be a solution if uh, some of the parking lots near transit were made into housing and people could take ride shares to the station instead of, you know, your cars go there and sit there empty for eight or ten hours and then someone comes back and drives them away. That is not a smart use of that land. So tell us about Uber and Lyft, whether they enablers in this, or they're whether well, making the problem worse?
0: Um, I think it's really helping um, delay the purchase of private vehicles in some cases, but unfortunately, back to the you know the housing side of the equation. Well, how many homes are are affordable to Lyft and Uber drivers? Well, it turns out many drivers are coming all the way from Sacramento in the Central Valley, and so hundred
1: miles away. So yeah, miles
0: right, away. right, hundred, right, hundred miles away, and. You know, is that really a tenable solution? And interestingly, actually, we have a project, a Green Trip certified project, and Green Trip is a certification similar to LEED that we've created at Transform that supports low traffic, low parked housing. And one project in Berkeley, we help them support zero car parking. Um, instead, they're offering free transit passes for 40 years, a bike kitchen, But it turns out that they're set aside of affordable units when we ask like, oh, so who's living in those? And it turns out they're Uber and Lyft drivers.
1: We're talking about climate change and affordable housing with Ann Chang, transportation expert with Transform. Rachel Swan from the San Francisco Chronicle. Isla Gracian, president of the East LA Community Corporation. And Scott Wiener, California state senator. I'm Greg Dalton. Senator Wiener, uh, this idea of transit-oriented development's been around for a few decades why is it so hard it sounds logical walkable communities and yet it just seems like it's why does it take so long why is it so hard
3: it's you know it's not surprising we're talking about changing the look and feel of neighborhoods people say i moved into a neighborhood that was single-family homes i don't want apartment buildings in my neighborhood I moved into a neighborhood where everything is really spread out and nothing is taller than 20, 25 feet tall. I don't want anything taller than that. And we've gotten used to, in California, housing patterns just spreading out and spreading out and covering up farmland and having people commute two hours. It's just the way it is. And when you say, hey, let's instead focus more of our growth and more of our housing around transit in or near job centers, it means physical change in a neighborhood that people rebel against. And that's why it's incredibly hard.
1: Also, Senator Weiner, as you look around the country, what cities are doing this right? What cities do you look to that say, "Ah, oh, they're facing these pressures, and they're having the balance of allowing capital to come in without people getting pushed around? Do you see any?
3: I think mean, Seattle, which is experiencing some really severe problems that are California-like, has been, I, I think—
1: Too California-like for their taste. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah.
3: they—well, we, we export our housing problems to other places, too, <laughs> as people can't afford to live here. But— Seattle has been actually really implementing and also exploring some really aggressive increases in density, including having that conversation about single-family home zoning. They're having that conversation in Seattle, and they're doing some really good uh, work. You know, Chicago is a city that, not perfect city by any stretch of the imagination, but they've not been afraid of accepting new housing. Or you look at Washington, D.C., Um, Again, having some of the same gentrification struggles as all major cities, but their rents have gone down because they've been adding a lot of housing. And even in New York, with problems that are, again, are on the scale of California in a lot of ways, in multiple boroughs, their rents are starting to come down. It's not coming down fast enough. It's not broad enough. We want it to be faster, faster, faster. But you know, we are seeing some positive things happen, even as very challenging things happen.
1: Expanding supply works. Isla Gracian, I wanna talk about a lot of headlines recently about the border, terrible things, you know, heinous things happening at the border, a lot of people anxious about deportation. I want you to talk a little bit about how that's affecting your your community and people seeking services. We're talking about housing. You know, some people are worried about things getting worse.
4: Yeah. Um I mean, I think with, with the issue of, of immigration and deportation um, in our communities, it's something that um, unfortunately has been a- alive for a really long time. And I think right now it's just getting a different level of attention. And for for the communities that we engage with and work with um, around housing and just improving the, their neighborhood you know, we have a lot of families that are mixed status. You know, In Los Angeles, a lot of our housing is protected with rent stabilization. And um, if there is a, a landlord that maybe is um, evicting, um, they're fearful of speaking up about those issues or if their housing conditions are Um, in not-so-great situations. There was an apartment that we went to one time where there was a railing, and if you leaned on the railing, the front door would open, even if it was locked. You know, so there's just, like, so many things that the current environment around immigration just makes it uh, a lot harder. Um, Increase in homelessness in the city of L.A. There's a lot more. We're hearing from partners that work um, with shelters and providing services that there's been an increase in people without status um, going to, to seek those services so every opportunity that we have to be able to protect tenants we have to take it and there there was a time in in our in our state in our country where um, government was in the business of providing housing and we pulled out of that and there was a time in our country where where companies were in the business of providing for for their employers and we have to also shift the way we look at ownership and stewardship of land, right? We think about it as like, it's my property when land is a natural resource, right? And I can tell you in, in uh, I grew up definitely in a Latino community, my my parents having their own home, but we they didn't see it as something that they were gonna cash out or move into a bigger place. This was like a place, to grow family, to grow community. And that has shifted a lot, right? You see all these shows that's like, you can get a lot of money, you can flip it. So this notion has gone on steroids about using land and property and home to make a lot of money. And that has impacts on climate because of the resources that that takes. But we have to shift on every single level. And if we're going to solve and get out of this really bad place that we're in, we have to shift on the policy level, we have to shift on the economic level, and we have to shift on a personal level on how we view our homes.
2: You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the challenge of creating housing density around transit while not displacing long-term residents with Ann Chang of Transform, a transit planning agency and advocacy group. Isla Gracian, president of the East L.A. Community Corporation, Rachel Swan, a City Hall reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and State Senator Scott Wiener, representing San Francisco, Daly City, and Colma. Here's Greg, taking questions from the audience at Climate One.
1: We're going to include your comments or questions. Join us with a single one-part comment or question. If you need help keeping it brief, I'm here for you. And... <laughs> um, there's a first brave mover right there. Welcome to Climate One.
8: Hi, uh, thanks for the talk. So Kamala Harris and Cory Booker have introduced federal legislation around housing, renters, a refundable tax credit, some other flexibility things from Cory Booker. So it seems nothing's going to move in the short term, so we need a focus state and local, but um, what's the long-term role of the federal government in this space?
7: Hmm.
4: Resources. <laughs> I can tell you, um, as... Uh, uh, an organization that builds affordable housing. The cuts to to funding have been so significant at the the federal level, um, in, in double digits of percentages of like how much money is available to actually like build. Um, so the federal government plays a role in resources, and they also play a role in framing and participating in supporting changing uh, the hearts and minds of, of our neighbors right? on how uh, we can approach and solve um, the housing crisis.
3: Senator Weiner, I am thrilled that you have United States senators, including ones who may run for president, uh, who are talking about housing. Because I think historically housing has been it purely, when you had the federal government that used to invest went away, and it was just all local, local, local. Local government plays a key role, but it's not enough. And so the state is starting to step in with better standards uh, since it's a statewide issue. But I think it's great that President Obama, uh, that his uh, HUD issued a lot of guidance around housing and sustainable housing, and we now have senators. So I think the more we can have all levels of government focusing on housing, the better.
1: Next question, welcome.
4: So uh, I'm speaking to a chicken-egg issue, or chicken-egg, chicken-egg, chicken-egg. There's problems of crowded transit, the phenomenon of increases in transit provoking investment, which in turn provokes gentrification. What do you do
0: about that? I recommend uh, community development corporations to essentially purchase land and then ignite transit um, funding measures. So in Boston, the Indigo Corridor essentially did that. So they knew to purchase the land of a defunct transit corridor... That was majority black Americans along this corridor. And by buying up the land first and then initiating the, the transit initiatives to fund that transit, to bring it back online, they were able to do that value capture altogether.
1: Sounds like an expensive and long-term game. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
7: Yes, hi, I'm uh, Mark Rocha. I'm Chancellor of City College of San Francisco. And uh, my college owns 64 acres that is 50 yards from the Balboa Park Art station. So we have a master plan that will put workforce and student housing, eliminate our own homelessness crisis among our students by putting as many as 1,000 units there. So um, I'm very happy about that. But of course, there will be, (laughs) besides risking my own life, uh, by putting uh, putting that proposal forward, which is out there on the west part of uh, Western uh, San Francisco, um, you know, it'll be a, a one thing I just wanted to, to, raise is that land is so dear, but here we have community colleges educate most of the co- uh, college students in the state and we have a lot of land and it's not being used very efficiently. We, we have 10 campuses, uh, in the city of San Francisco and we could be putting housing on, on
3: several of them with, with some help and support. And we have enormous amounts uh, from our community colleges, but also our school districts, just government-owned surplus property uh, or parking lots around BART stations. And it presents great opportunities uh, to build housing with a significant component of affordability. Uh, And and, uh, we have to support these institutions because the community pushback um, is often severe.
1: And Chang?
0: I just want to offer. Also, we have a tool, transform development tool called Green Trip Connect. If you, everybody has their phones, you can actually dial it in connect.greentrip.org, and the whole purpose is to give everyone a traffic, climate, and parking calculator tool to analyze a parking or a housing project in a neighborhood near you. And this is a tool that has been essentially um, supported by the Governor's Office of Planning and Research to guide general plan updates around cities across the state. So I invite you to use it. It's free, connect.greenship.org.
1: Next question. Welcome to Climate One.
9: Thank you. My name is Carla Mays. Um, I'm with Smart Cohort. We're the first intermediary for equitable smart city development. And I saw the senator earlier um, last session and we talked about the lack of diversity on projects in design and build and in lead. And you spoke earlier about you know trying to have a different dialogue with different communities and how there seems to be very progressive white um, environmentalists on one hand pushing biking pushing different things and then trying to talk to black and brown communities about these things one of the the challenges is trying to be um, a part of these discussions and sitting at the table to put together solutions Um, and I wanted to understand how are you addressing the the lack of being able to bring these two communities together and especially the lack of diversity thank you
1: senator weiner
3: we're doing a, a, a lot of infrastructure investment. We're doing a, a more uh, building of affordable housing. There's more development overall. Uh, and it does take a certain level, a lot of intentionality, to make sure that communities are benefiting from those jobs. Uh, whether it's high-speed rail, whether it's a smaller project, uh, it's incredibly important. We, uh, the voters of California and the U.S. Supreme Court have not made our lives easier uh, in terms of uh, they've, we've really been restricted in our ability to try to ensure diversity uh, in terms of who is hired, what firms are hired. In San Francisco, we found some, I think, creative ways uh, within the bounds of the law um, to do that outreach, to really get, um, uh, you know, more uh, kinds of businesses and people from different neighborhoods and backgrounds and saying, if we're building in your community, let's make sure people in this community are, are working and businesses are, are getting that business. Uh, so there are, I think there are ways to do it. I think at a statewide level, it's probably behind, but I, I think there, there's certainly a will in uh, that diverse outreach. Isla Gracian.
4: Yeah, and I would just add that I think it's important to note that on the ground there is a lot of movement around racial equity and and diversity and and inclusion and breaking down. Uh, racism in particular and I think that it's still a challenge in policy spaces to really lean into that conversation um, especially um, around housing um, I've been in a lot of spaces where folks are like oh you know it's, it's just a, a natural tr- transitions of people or it gets diverted to we're in California we're inclusive um, so I think it is important to continue to uplift that and, and bring it up at the forefront um, and and there are a lot of Uh, organizations that um, and community residents that that are building up that movement and really bridging across sectors because this is um, there's intersections you know I'm really excited that we're here at climate one talking about housing within the context of of climate Um, but there's a lot of intersections that are taking place and there are um, you know, educational justice organizations that before were never talking about housing, that now are because of the impact to students and not being able to focus because of their housing or or all these wins around educational justice, and now the students can't benefit from it because their uh, families are being displaced. So, being able to uplift racial diversity within these conversations, I think, is really important and critical. And there is. Um, movement happening on the ground, and we just need to continue to bring it up and and lean into the the discomfort that that brings um, until we can break through onto the other side and and truly have uh, policies that uplift everybody.
1: We're talking about climate change and affordable housing in California and around the country with Ann Chang, transportation expert with Transform, an advocacy group. Isla Gracian, president of the East L.A. Community Corporation. Rachel Swan from the San Francisco Chronicle and Scott Weiner, California state senator. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
9: Hi, thank you. Um, I'd like to hear some specific recommendations around unifying communities with relatively like-minded goals, but clearly are clashing, right? In these processes, as you're talking about, like the yes in my backyard people coming into conflict, right, with like local community organizers, and they probably mean well, right? And then like there are these problems happening. So I would just like to hear some specific solutions around like avoiding gentrification while still maintaining the infill that we need for our ever-growing cities. Thank you.
1: You still Sam?
4: Yeah. Really simple but really hard at the same time. It's creating space to engage and get to know each other. With within our processes and we've been b- building out around community-driven development, um, it's being intentional about creating space for people to dialogue and get to know each other as, as people and individuals. And um, more recently, we've been leveraging uh, practices around arts and culture to bring people into spaces where they're creating and doing and then having conversation. And those can look like sharing food and learning about dishes that are particular to... To families and cultural traditions, and then being able to build from there. And that helps bring down a little bit of the tension so that you can get into really tough conversations because we've experienced very horrible comments when we um, are working through our projects um, and getting support. But being able to have these spaces where traditionally you go in and you're, you're, ready to fight, right? And we need to be able to build in processes where you're getting to talk, you're getting to know each other, so that when you're talking about the tougher conversations, your starting point is different. So it encourages sharing meals, coming together to make meals, um, having conversations of what they enjoy about their neighborhood versus starting the long list of everything that they don't like about the neighborhood. Um, So it's really about dialogue, creating community, creating relationships, and and being intentional about that and putting in the work. It's messy. It's hard. It's challenging. But we've definitely seen seen shifts in our neighborhood. neighborhood where there there was community residents that as soon as they heard our name, they were like, no, we're nothing. And then once they started seeing and experiencing our process and, and all the different work that we do, then now they're at a place where like, oh, let me hear about what they're working on and then I'll make a decision. So it's really creating those spaces, having community convenings, having the sessions and not being afraid of talking about the challenging topics.
1: Civil dialogue. Let's go to our last question.
8: Brief comment, which is that uh, new housing tends to be wheelchair and disability accessible up to ADA code. Uh, That's an incredible value of uh, dense housing as opposed to old places with steps up to the front. So uh, really appreciate everybody fighting for new accessible housing. Another thing is the Union of Concerned Scientists just came out uh, relatively recently with a study looking at uh, housing that's going to be underwater. Uh, by 2045 and the Bay Area and the immediate coast has a, you know, a somewhere short of $10 billion uh, worth of property and, you know, many, many thousands of homes. How do we balance the fact that we're having uh multi-hundred million dollar uh, mixed use and condo units going up within a few meters of sea level here in the Embarcadero and being long-term climate ready uh, with low density, you know, with low carbon impact housing?
1: one to six feet of sea level rise this century. Cheng,:
0: When you mentioned the 10 billion, I wanted to make sure everybody understood that um, a parking space f- to house a car costs $50,000. And to house uh, a family, to create a unit of housing, is about $400,000. So you're talking about almost 12% of the cost of a home is all going to the house a car. And I did a quick calculation. Uh, the Bay Area is ideally building 200,000 units of housing by 2022. Who knows if we'll ever get there? Um, but if we were to just reduce the uh, the car ratio, so reduce it from on average it's two car parking spaces per one housing unit. If we just reduce that by one, that's the equivalent of 10 billion dollars alone.
3: And more housing.
0: And more housing. More housing.
1: But on sea level rise, Senator Weiner, there's lots of property. You know, California has a lot at risk. Talk to a U.S. Admiral. The, the country's largest naval base in Norfolk, Virginia, is flooding. Sea level rise. We're not ready for this. It seems slow, but it's happening fast. What's California doing?
3: You know, I think we're starting to grapple with it, and we're, we're behind. Um, we have uh, major—we've you know, seen the—I'm forgetting which highway in the, in the North Bay— uh, which got flooded for the whole winter—is that 37 or mm-hmm. one of them? And and it's it's going to be lost. And and I think stuff like that is a real wake-up call for people. Like, well, this is okay, tangible in my life that this road will not be there anymore. Um, we know that our, we have major transit infrastructure that could be underwater, the Embarcadero seawall, which is ancient and deteriorating, and we're at risk of having the Muni subway tunnels flooded and the Embarcadero flooded. Uh, and so we, uh, A, we're, we are ramping up our, our infrastructure investment to shore things up and protect them, and we have to do that on steroids. So we need to be faster and do more, and we need to make sure, and this is around sea level rise, but also around the wildfires, and these are hard conversations, about where are we building housing? And as we rebuild, are we going to rebuild exactly what we did before, or are we going to see the patterns and try to do things differently? That's a real hard one, but we have to learn uh, and not repeat the past mistakes in terms of how we're building housing and where we're building housing.
2: Greg Dalton has been talking about housing strategies for greener cities with Ann Chang of Transform, a transit planning agency and advocacy group. Issa LaGrossian, president of the East L.A. Community Corporation, a nonprofit that has built hundreds of affordable housing units in a working-class neighborhood near downtown Los Angeles. Rachel Swan, a City Hall reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, who's also reported for the SF Weekly and the East Bay Express and State Senator Scott Wiener, representing San Francisco, Daly City, and Colma. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy,
1: and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.